Oh, I'm Caitlin. I'm sorry. I couldn't see Jewel. I couldn't see uh, Judy. Okay. That's okay. I'll just edit it out so you can start whenever yeah. you like. Okay, great. All right, great. Thank you. Welcome to the Acro Files 2024. Our listeners know that the American College of Real Estate Lawyers is a national organization of 1,000 practitioners fostering the exchange of the most sophisticated ideas and experiences in the development, financing, and investment of real estate. We continue our series of podcasts with individuals in commercial real estate who have played leading roles in their companies and have helped shape the industry to share reflections about their careers and some predictions for the future. Today, I'm pleased to welcome my good friend, Judy Turchin, former general counsel of Blackstone Real Estate and COO of Equinox. Judy also was a real estate associate at Wachtell Lipton, which would be of particular interest to our Acral Fellows. Thanks for joining me this morning, Judy. Jay, thank you for having me. I am honored to be here um, among some of the esteemed guests that you've had on this program. So thanks for inviting me. Well, thanks. So before we talk about your incredible career and the many different things that you've done, I thought we would start out by giving you a chance to tell us a little bit about where you grew up, uh, your background. Maybe you can tell us about the pizzeria um, and um, how you um, decided to focus on real estate. Yeah, thank you. Um, so I'm a Jersey girl for any of the Jersey listeners out there. Woohoo. Uh, born in Fairlawn, New Jersey to two immigrant parents. Um, I'm a first generation American. Uh, my dad was from Romania. My mother was from Hungary. So I am probably the real story of a, of an immigrant child who told their parents every day that we have to speak English because we were living in America. Um, so born in Fairlawn, went, uh, went back to Hungary for some time with our family. Um, that was sort of my parents' roots. And so back and forth, I would say, between the US and Europe and Hungary for a long time, and then went to Rutgers. I would tell you not to cut to the chase, but you know, some of your listeners sort of say they got to their uh, careers sort of through twists and turns. My parents told me that at age five, I looked at them and said, I'm going to be a lawyer. Now, I don't know if that was because I was argumentative early or what it was, but it was very clear that age five, I was going to be a lawyer. So um, went to Rutgers, went to Fordham Law School. And sure enough, you know, however many years after I proclaimed it, I, I in fact became a lawyer. Okay. But I think and I, we've talked about this, and maybe we'll get to this a little bit more. I know as a child of Holocaust survivors, you had lots of different challenges in your life, and you worked really hard, um, and, and you had some interesting early jobs before you went to law school. Yeah, I did. So my father, unfortunately, passed away early. I was 15, um, and my mom moved back home to Hungary, and so it became apparent that in order to like keep doing what I needed to do, I needed to get some jobs, which... I would say was probably a gift in disguise. I, I maybe now look back at that and realize I'm not sure that at age 15 I did, but there was a kosher pizza parlor that existed in Fairlawn for those of your listeners that know Fairlawn, Jerusalem pizza. And um, the owners were a lovely husband and wife and they said, you know, come work with us. We'll teach you how to make hummus. Um, I never learned how to make hummus really well, but I learned how to work in a service industry, which I will tell you is probably one of the most important things you can do throughout your career. It really teaches you hard work and humility and has such a great um, benefit to whatever you go do. And, and we can talk later about how I think it even affects being a great lawyer and service partner to your clients. Um, 
So yeah, I went from Jerusalem pizza to photo mat, not the little drive-in ones. I know your listeners are going to think like, if they could even remember what photo mat was, it was those drive-ins. We had a storefront. We were very fancy at my photo mat. Um, and so I had a lot of amazing early people that believed in me, gave me jobs, taught me how to work hard. Um, I think I was lucky. Okay. So fast forward a little bit. You go to Rutgers and Fordham and you join this small law firm, Wachtell Lipton, which is not actually known as a real estate firm, although it's got some terrific people like Robin, you know, Panofka, who I assume was there then, and Adam Emmerich and those yes, guys. Yes, right? yes, so, yeah. So what was that like? And, and how did you just decide you'd be in, real, in the real estate practice there? Yeah, so Jay, I don't even know if we've talked about this, but my, I summered, I was a summer associate at what was then Robinson, Silverman, Pierce, Aronson, and Berman which has now, of course, become Brian Cave. And I summered there. I was so fortunate to be offered a summer position. And then when I went back, I remember specifically saying to the hiring partner, um, what does the firm do well? This is coming out of the economic downturn of the like late 80s, early 90s. And I said, where, where do we make the most money in the firm? And he's like, what are you talking about? I said, I need to go into a group within the firm that I am going to be sure will not have a downturn and where I won't get fired because I need to like pay my bills. And he said, the real estate group is what we're known for. I had no idea what real estate, I said, put me there. I want to be a real, like, I want to be a real estate lawyer. Um, and so I started my career at Robinson Silverman and it was really that really hands-on learning and, and a credit to all the amazing people that were there that gave me the opportunity to then go to Wachtell not known as a real estate practice, but there were a few partners, and I'll mention many of them by name, who just wanted someone who knew what real estate was already, that they didn't have to train from the ground up. And so that's how I got lucky to be a lateral hire into Wachtell. I, I kind of knew enough to be dangerous at that point in my career. And did you get to work on like the large real estate M&A type transactions that they typically handle? Yeah, so I had an interesting practice. I was fortunate enough to sit alongside um, one of the partners, Michael Benner. I'm going to name him because he's just a phenomenal human and lawyer and maybe yep. one of the best lawyers I know. Um, he was doing work at the time, really more typical real estate work. Um, a lot of it for Tishman Spire. Of course, he's in-house there with them now um, and has been for a long time. So I had the opportunity to work on what I'll call dirt real estate with him. And then Robin and Adam were really just beginning the REIT practice. And so I got a little taste of that. And then a lot of M&A work, which was really exciting. Um, lawyers like Mitchell Presser and others were doing M&A work and brought me in as kind of the real estate expert. And then I started doing a little bit of environmental law. So I would say I saw real estate from both the large corporate angle as well as literally buying and selling office buildings, financing. So I got a real exceptional view of real estate from so many different vantage points as a result of being at a firm like Wachtell. Great. So at this point, you've followed the path that's typical of right. lots of people that will be listening to this in the college and, and others of a traditional law firm path. Um, but at some point, you get this wonderful opportunity before 2008 in the GFC to go to Lehman. How, how does that happen? And what, what drives you to make that change in your career? Yeah, so I, was, I had been at Wachtell for 10 years. I loved it. I really never imagined, honestly, that I would leave some of my best friends um, 
two of them that I just had lunch with today are women that I met at Wachtell. It was really a special place. But Michael announced that he was leaving to go work at Tishman. And I think it was just a moment in time where I thought like I could stay or I could imagine doing something on my own. Lehman Brothers um, had been a lender of record for us on a lot of our transactions. And I had gotten to know the folks there, uh, particularly Yan Cho, who was um, leading the, the debt business there. And so I was fortunate enough for them to invite me over to Lehman to be the lawyer of the debt business at Lehman. This is the private equity debt business as opposed to the balance sheet business. And we had an amazing year from 2007 to 2008. We lent a lot of money and we had a lot of fun and the team was amazing. And I got to see what it meant to be an internal advisor to clients. And it was so different. Um, and I was so fortunate that the team that I was working with was so amazing. Um, and then 2008 happened. Um, I joined Lehman exactly a year to the day that we filed for the world's largest bankruptcy. So some people say I'm lucky. Some people say I'm good. I don't know. It's both. It was a little like jumping on the Titanic. Um, but it was really a seat at the table at something that was phenomenally big and certainly bigger than myself. That's for sure. So before we talk about the GFC and that, and that those challenges, talk a little bit more about what you were just touching on that you got to see life from a very different perspective in, in-house versus your associate days. And of course, we're going to talk about your time at Blackstone and Equinox. You've got this great lens into all these different pieces of the puzzle that we deal with. So as you were moving from being a very successful private practitioner into in-house Lehman, tell, tell us just a couple of things that you really observed and that helped you um, in that transition. Yeah, I would say the first and maybe most important thing I learned that then served me well at Blackstone was how to say yes. I think as an outside lawyer, you have the I would say privilege, vantage point of being able to point out all the reasons why a transaction or something may not be perfect. I would say that I immediately at Lehman got to realize that things were going to happen and I could either get on board and help steer the ship so that they happened in the best way that, I, you know, legal way that I could imagine, or the ship was going to set sail without me. And so I think starting with yes, but versus no, but was like, it sounds simple, but people will hear the but after a yes. After, once you say no, they sort of tune you out. And so I think it's literally being able to take people on a journey where they trust that you have their best interest. Now, remember, these are originators. These are people whose job it is to do transactions. And so you have to be a facilitator to them. You have to be seen as someone who wants them to succeed. And so I think investing in people, investing in your partners, who were previously your clients, it's at a different level than being an outside lawyer. An outside lawyer, you move on to another client, you know, you bill an hour, move on to another client. Here you're sitting with your clients day in and day out. And so having them know and trust that you want them to be successful and you're going to facilitate that while also protecting the firm, that was really the big moment, like aha moment for me. Okay. Okay. And then you're there, as you say, on the day that uh, you're called back in, I think, for that weekend before the bankruptcy was filed that Monday or Tuesday, we had people working in the office that weekend on, on I think, the bidding um, for what was going yeah, on. Yeah, September 12th. Yeah. Yeah. So 
you're in there, first of at least two major um, um, resets that you have worked through. We'll talk about the other one around COVID. But what's it like when the world's coming to cratering around you at what was one of the biggest lenders and, and underwriters and most important companies in the world on Wall Street? Yeah, I would say when I got the call the Saturday before I was um, out of the city, I had friends visiting me. I was with my husband. We were all together. And I said, I got to go. And, you know, I didn't reappear again for another five days. I remember getting the call saying we're going to file, that Lehman was going to file for bankruptcy. And I said, it's impossible. Like, we can't. We're just too big. And I, I know that sounds ridiculous now looking back, too big to fail. There's all these, you know, stories about this. But I really remember thinking at the moment, like, if we file, like, what happens to the financial establishment? Um, sure enough, we did. But it was it was one of those moments where you don't believe it's going to happen, then you find out it's going to happen, and then you have to move very quickly to salvaging the pieces. And I always say it was a horrible situation for those at Lehman who had been there for a long time, many of them, right? Lehman was an institution. For those of your listeners, either they may know people that were there, it was a community. It was really a special place. And so the tragedy of so many people's lives being up, you know, upended, I would say the juxtaposition for me is that it turned out to be an amazing opportunity for a young lawyer, right? I had only been there a year. I thankfully didn't have much to lose by way of equity and all the other things that folks just saw disappear overnight. And for me, I took it as a challenge to say, like, how are we going to do this? How, how are we going to pivot from catastrophe and tragedy to like, let's make something of it. And so it immediately moved to helping our two businesses, one which one of which was a real estate debt business and the other of a, was a real estate equity business to figuring out a way out of this mess. Um, and I spent two years doing that. And so that was honestly from tragedy came so much learning for me that I, I look back at it as really being some of the formative years of my legal career, figuring out how to turn, you know, um, how, to, how to turn something that's tragic into something that turned out to be a pretty good outcome for the folks on my team. And did you, during that couple of year period during the GFC, were you transitioning from being a legal advisor to a more of a consigliere business advisor? I think that's true. Yes, I would say yes. But when you're going through this, the details matter, right? You're in a bankruptcy, you're trying to work through. What I think I became more of was an expert at finding people who, as outside lawyers, could provide their expertise versus, you know, I'd been taught, whether at Wachtell, like you do it yourself, right? Like if you want something done, do it yourself. I think Lehman, I came to realize was so much larger than me. And so I had the great fortune of being able to bring in advisors and consultants and lawyers who could help direct me so that I could free myself up to advise my clients. So I think it was a combination of, yes, becoming a consigliere, but as well, finding people to lawyers on my team who I could really trust and respect, who could help direct me so that I could funnel the information um, up to the business people. And I, I mean, I'm sure there were dark days there, right? Where you were there times when you thought this wasn't good, you couldn't come out of this, and we were just, just going to have to, you know, liquidate the whole thing and and go home and find your next job. 
Yeah, I mean, I think I remember thinking, hearing about, you know, the look throughs, the look through condos and, and, you know, apartment buildings in South Florida, right? I forget what we used to call them, but it was like, there was a word for it because they were glass on both sides and there was zero see-through buildings. See-through buildings. We financed a lot of see-through buildings. It was, and so I remember thinking, you know, I remember thinking a lot about Lehman, but then thinking macroeconomically that like there was going to be so many stalled developments, so many things that needed to be worked out. It was a little bit overwhelming. And I think when times like that happen, you got to sort of go back to like, what can I accomplish? Like worry about what you can change versus worry about what you can't. And I think at Lehman, that's what we undertook. We, we undertook an exercise of like, how do we make the best out of what is a horrific situation for all involved? And that gave me purpose and that gave me direction. I think otherwise it could have really been a free fall into like beyond tragedy, right? For, for everyone. I just left Wachtell. Like it literally, I mean, the irony is like you walk away from something so great to head to a bank that is at its preeminence in the real estate community. And, and a year later as a young lawyer to find that sort of pulled from out from under you, you sort of question like, how did I do this? Like, can I go back? Um, but I, I chose not to, and it turned out to be a great choice. Okay, so let's just pause for one second, because I wanted to ask you about this before we um, you know, talk about the next chapter for you. So, so you're working you know, in a, at a time that it's still mostly a white, white man's world in the real estate business. Right. And, and, you know, you're, you're younger and you're sort of more in the maybe in the transition years. But talk a little bit about how hard, what kind of gender challenges you face, particularly when you go on the business side. Maybe it wasn't as difficult on the law firm side, but maybe it was, you can tell me. But you're now you're on the business side. Yeah, I would say it was. It was certainly difficult early in my days. I mean, Robinson Silverman was a great place, but it was there weren't a ton of women mentors that I could look up to. There was Erica Foreman, there were a few who were real legendary, but really mostly not. Um, and real estate didn't have sort of a cadre of people. And I would say Wachtell was a great place because it sort of didn't matter male, female, if you were, you know, if you did your job well, you were, um, you, you were, you know, valued. I would say Lehman was still probably more male than female. Um, Jackie Hamilton, who I'm going to give her a shout out, was one of my clients, and she sat on the debt business. She's now at Macquarie running um, part of their real estate. It was amazing to come into Lehman and have her as both a partner and a and a advisor and a mentee. And, and, and it was really the first time that I got to a place where I found another woman in real estate who had set her sights and having like a real career at it. Um, and then... I was just fortunate. Yan Cho was just an amazing mentor and person for me. Um, I don't know. I, I, I feel fortunate. I don't know that I truly appreciated that. I, you know, a lot of people say to me, oh, you, you know, you broke through the glass ceiling. It didn't feel like it, but I look back and realize like maybe it was, maybe it was, but I, I had the great fortune of a lot of good mentors, people, um, and hopefully a little bit of just trying to not be, overwhelmed by that but really just do good work and find good people to work around and you it sounds like you had i mean nina Matus talks about this you know she had both terrific male mentors back when she started practicing law and of course found some female mentors she's older with a lot harder i'm sure um but totally. you had a combination 
sounds like. Yeah, I would say mostly male mentors, but found a few female colleagues and friends that I made along the way, I would say. Um, and it's interesting because I really make a point now, and I'm sure we'll get to this, of finding you know folks to mentor. Um, and I look at young women in the real estate business and I, and I realize they're probably still looking for mentorship um, in large part. And so to the extent I can do that, I, I try to now because um, I think it's important to sort of pay it forward. Pay it forward, right on. So, okay, so you work your way through the global financial crisis at Lehman. The world resets, I guess, relatively quickly, 2009, 10, 11. Um, and then you decide that, you know, you got to do something else. Tell us, tell us how you yeah. came about that. Yeah. So I, I'd say in, in a good way, I worked myself out of a job, right? We did a management buyout, a part of our business. We sold a part of our business to a third party and my work was done. And I sent an email, true story. I sent an email to the then general counsel of Blackstone, a gentleman by the name of Bob Friedman. And I said, you don't know me, but would you be willing to have coffee with me? I feel like, you know, I commended him on Blackstone, all that it was doing. And he's literally responded. It's, it's such an interesting story. Now that I know him, he responded in less than a minute, which was shocking to me. Like by the time I hit send, I had a, a response back saying, sure, you know, here's my assistant. Let's make it happen. Didn't happen for a while. He got busy. I got busy. Um, and then funny the night before he and I were finally scheduled to meet and have coffee I got a call from the head of HR saying would you have breakfast with me and I thought to myself wow they really take their screening for coffee seriously like before I can have coffee with the GC of Blackstone I need to meet the head of HR for Blackstone I'm like okay this is like a serious place and so I said to her is there any reason like we you need to meet me first and she's like just her name was Laura. She's like, just have coffee with me. Trust me. And so we went and had coffee. And sure enough, as she said, you know, look, we're making changes. Bob wants to have coffee with you, but he also has a potential job for you. So it was luck and timing and, and all sorts of things. And so at that point, Blackstone was just really beginning to sink their teeth into the real estate business. I mean, they had already, but like, it was, it was moving on to supercharge phase. Um, and so I had the good fortune of being hired by Bob Friedman, uh, the then GC and, and joining the real estate group at Blackstone, sort of coming hot off of Lehman and the wine down there. But to be clear, right, you joined in the legal counsel group, right? I joined, that's true, yeah. So at the time that I joined, Blackstone was structured that the legal team sat separate from and apart from the business groups that they supported. So there was a legal function. We supported groups within the firm, but we sat as a as one unit reporting into the GC. Soon after I joined, um, it became apparent that like it that didn't work any longer. And so I was fortunate, John, Gray, and others sort of brought me from sitting in legal into the business. And that's when it got fun right? Sitting with your business partners, literally just sitting on the same floor was such a difference. Um, and so the, the legal teams then began to be subsumed within the businesses, still for compliance purposes and others, reporting into the GC as well, but really sitting with their business partners. Um, and that was a big sea change and, and one that I think has served them well. 
So, um, I mean, this is 2011, I think you started there. Is that right? 2010. Yeah, 2010. 2010. So as you say, they're, at, they're starting to supercharge their real estate practice. Then, you know, they were a different firm under Steve and Schreiber and everybody, right, um, in, in their private equity world. But then the real estate takes off um, and takes off, not just, of course, in the U.S., as I know, because I had the good fortune to interact and work with you around the world um, yeah. and they become this incredible major dominant player in the real estate industry globally and you're working 24 7 it seemed like like which was which is the standard of Blackstone. we used to say it was yeah. 24 24 8 um, to try and keep try and keep up with brian and all these young guys that we were working with back then right but yeah what was it like to be on that ride where Blackstone becomes, you know, perhaps the most dominant real estate investor in the world. Yeah. I say that we built a rocket ship and took it to the moon. But as you're building it, and I don't build a lot of rocket ships, but I think you don't realize the power of the rocket ship that you're building. And maybe I did. I, I suspect John did, but maybe I'm certainly not as smart as him. So I didn't realize that we were building a rocket ship. We were having a lot of fun. We were working really hard. We were all learning a tremendous amount. And so I think, again, it was eight years later as I rolled out of there that I realized like, wow, I had just, I've been on a ride. Like, this is amazing. But at the time, we just, again, it's sort of like Wachtell. You know, everyone says, Wachtell, they work so hard. We work so hard. You work. Yes, we do. But as someone says, like, if you love what you do, you never work a day in your life. I don't know. I've always loved what I've done. And so for me, it's never about the hard work. It's like, who am I doing with? You know, it's that two in the morning test that we say, like, if you can sit next to someone at two in the morning and still like them, like, you're happy going to work. And and everyone passed the test. Talk about the challenges. I mean, you were in a really you were at a focal point in so many ways because you were the chief legal person and trying to um, keep, you know, we were your eyes and ears out there, we thought lots of times, but we were not the only ones, obviously. How, how did you manage a global business that really went around the world? So we talk a lot about tone at the top and, and that term, to, to the extent your listeners aren't familiar, like I'm one person, I can't police an entire organization. What I can do is partner with the leaders at the top of the firm to say, these are the things that matter to us. And I had the great fortune of having a leader like Steve at our organization who really did set the tone early on for the firm to say that this was a firm that was going to put um, priority on people doing the right thing always at whatever cost that was. And then to have leaders like John come alongside of him and also reinforce that. So in a lot of ways, I say my job was easy. I mean, it wasn't easy, but it would have been impossible had I not had leaders who set the tone early on to say, we are going to do the right thing always and forever. That includes hiring the best advisors. That includes really making sure that we slow down if it means that we need to slow down to do the right thing, to pay for a transaction, to make sure our partners are the right partners. And so I, I may have been involved in 
reinforcing slash checking that that was happening. But again, I, I had the great fortune and I think all lawyers would agree with me is like, if you have someone who's your business partner or your leader and they put that as a priority, it makes your job so much easier. And so that, that was a lot of how you police an organization growing as we did. And then that begins to be just the culture and the expectations. And so that as we grew into London and into Hong Kong and into Tokyo and into Australia, it was always making sure that people understood that that was the expectation. Like I used to say, we don't do business differently in, I don't know, whatever you want, Tokyo or Hong Kong or right. We, we do business the same way, which is the right way. Now we may, you know, there may be different languages or, or some differences in culture, but the way in which we hold ourselves to account is going to be the same. Right, and, and your, your reflections, right, Leader, that demonstrate, right, leadership matters, right, and it's top, starts at the top, and then you go down to the next level, even under John, right, where you had Kathleen, Frank, Ken Kaplan, all these amazingly talented, I mean, everybody was smart, but it was a lot more than being smart and keeping your people, your own internal people motivated and on the right track, and your external advisors knowing what the expectations were. Right. And we were, look, yourself included, we had the best of the best in terms of external folks. And, and I agree, there's, it's self-selection in part, right? You, you begin to create an organization where, as you mentioned, all of those folks, everyone understood that the organization was only the sum of its parts. And we all had a responsibility for that. And that's, that's where it's really exciting because you feel like you're making a difference. Every day when you show up and do the right thing, you're making a difference in how the organization is perceived by advisors who want to work with you, partners who want to do business with you, the market, if you're a public company. So those little bits, each person has a stake in that. Right. And it's also, I, just as you were talking, I remember one of the first things you told us, which was very, very clear and should have been obvious, right? Everybody knows the principal outside counsel for Blackstone is Simpson, and Simpson doesn't have the breadth. It has the amazing talents, but the advice you gave us at the very beginning was be sure to play nice in the sandbox. Yeah. Uh, right? And it was obvious. We, we weren't, nobody was going to displace those guys, nor should they. And working together in the trenches with you and your team and with Simpson and their folks, always turned out just to what you say, the sum was you know, much greater than the sum of its parts was the whole. It was just, it was a terrific, terrific ride for anybody that had the chance to be involved. Yeah, I, I don't remember. I Now that you say it, I sort of have a memory. I believe play nice in the sandbox applies in life, right? Like it right. is a long game. And so I think about whether it's my career or whether it's young people coming up. And I always say you can choose to fight every point or you can choose to be smart figure out the points that matter and kind of let the rest go so you live to fight another day and i, I just think i think you and i sort of share that and i i think when i when i said that to you i think it was probably apparent you wouldn't have been on the team with us if if i didn't know that to be true about you um and so i think you and i sort of share that philosophy um and it's why we've stayed friends all these years so right, right. but the I, I would just say one say, 
one thing I've always said to younger lawyers when I tried to do, do my mentoring, play nice in the sandbox is definitely the right life philosophy. But you have to do, as long as it's inside the professional ethics bounds, what your client wants you to do. So if your client says, I want you to win every point, then if you can't um, follow that guideline, then you're not the right lawyer for that, that client. And that's out there. It happens. But they're not as much fun. Um, and, and when people want to walk away from negotiations and deals feeling like everybody's won something um, and then we can continue on. So I, I just think it was a great privilege to work with that team of people and, and get to be on some wonderful cutting edge transactions. So, so you spent eight years of your life in, in this great organization. And once again, Judy Turchin decides I, I need to do something else um, and come over to the other side. Uh, so talk about how that sort of came about and how you ended up at Equinox. Yeah. So at some point during my career at Blackstone, I started doing administrative work for the real estate group. So moving beyond legal. And that was my first, I think once you move outside of a firm, you begin to be more administrative in function as a lawyer. But this really was a deviation at Blackstone as the chief administrative officer doing everything from comp to offices. And it piqued my interest and curiosity and it gave me a view of the business from a different vantage point. And I think I must have honestly really liked it and enjoyed it because at some point in 2017, I began to think like, I've been a practicing lawyer for a really long time. Could I transition? Um, and I went back and forth for a very long time and most people, I'll be honest with you, said it's really hard. Once you're a lawyer for 25 plus years, like it's hard to leave the law. And I said, okay, I hear you. That's never scared me. Like the harder it is, probably the more I'm intrigued by it and challenged by it. And so I set about trying to find an opportunity that was going to be non-legal. Um, and as is my, as, as I'm likely to do, I reached out to the folks at Equinox as I did at Blackstone and said, hey, would you have coffee with me? By the way, the worst that someone says to you is no. I, that is like one of the themes of my life. Like you ask and if politely, and if someone says no, fine. But if they say yes, like you just won. So I was fortunate that Equinox said yes to coffee. And I was fortunate that they said yes to hiring me. And I got a chance to pivot away from being a lawyer to an entirely new career. Um, and yeah, be careful what you wish for. It's, it was a it was a big pivot. Well, there was a little, little unpredicted timing issue that you, no, no, nobody always could predict. That is, you got there in what, 2017, 18, and COVID happened a year plus later. Right, yes. Um, but as with Lehman, I sort of say like, both of them were instances where the outcome was not as I anticipated, but the learning was unprecedented. And if I had to go back and redo my career, I would opt for both again in all instances. Because I say crisis builds character. I have a lot of character. And I think crisis teaches you so much that if you can be open to it and if you can survive it, that you come out the other end with a... Um, a toolbox that's even more full than when you went in. And so, so yeah, I joined Blackstone, left Equinox, um, 
sorry, left Blackstone, joined Equinox. A lot of people say, oh, they, you know, it must have been a real estate play for you. Did you go to Equinox for real estate? And I say, no, although it is interesting, real estate, and it continues in my career now, real estate is sort of the fundamental um, building block of almost everything I've ever done, meaning that Equinox is 106 physical locations, but my job, we had a chief development officer. I did not run real estate for, for Equinox. I was a global chief operating officer and then became as well the office of the CEO. Um, and for a year and a half after I joined, we had this miraculous um, expansion and road to growth. We went from, I want to say about 70 or so locations. We broke our hundredth location during the time that I was there getting to a hundred in the, in the direct consumer retail space is like a big number. So we hit a hundred. That was a big number. We did a lot of amazing things, expanding into new markets. We launched a active travel business. We, we just, the growth was, was exponential. And then March 16th of 2020 came and we closed 106 locations and 14,000 employees didn't have a job to show up to the next day. So before we talk about that extraordinarily challenging time and, and running the company, during that first you know year and a half or so, you're now not acting as a lawyer anymore. Correct. Right? You're really acting as the COO and as a business person. Um, tell us one couple of things. You know how your previous 25 years shaped your ability to do that, and what some of the biggest challenges were sitting on the other side of the table. Yeah, I would say a law, you know, even to this day, like a law degree or, you know, going to law school and practicing a lawyer teaches you a way of thinking. Like, it's always a good idea. And, you know, some people should I go to law school, should I not go to law school? I think it's invaluable if you have the privilege to go to law school and you can. And, it, you know, like what it teaches you, the way it teaches you to think critically and to dissect problems. So I would say that way of thinking the way of, um, of just being able to take a complicated problem, break it down to its simple parts and sort of solve for it is just a critical way of thinking that you learn as a lawyer. So I think that served me well. Knowing real estate as an asset class, I think was helpful in the sense that we, you know, are, it's a brick and mortar business. And so I think not being scared of that. Um, but I think the greatest challenge was a learning a new industry, right? I didn't know the fitness industry. It is a very, very tough industry. And operating a business that relies on sales as its main component is fascinating. I mean, for those of your listeners, like it, there are operating businesses and then there are operating businesses. The gym business is really an operating business. And I mean that every day you've got to wake up and fill your gyms, right? Um, and that means sales, and that means personal training, and that means group fitness. And there's got to be people in there every day that are consuming your product. And I had never had that sort of daily focus, right? Deals can sometimes, I mean, you and I have done deals that have gone, you know, sometimes they're fast, but even a fast deal can take several weeks, if not months. Um, here, you're living hour by hour, day by day, pushing, pushing, um, and every day you close the books, you don't have a chance to make up that day's numbers. And so that was a real mind shift. My friends would joke with me. They'd say, are you now a day trader? 
And I said, what are you talking about? They're like, well, you wake up in the morning and you look at your budget numbers that you have to hit for the day. And then at 12, you're looking at your 12 you know, PM reading and then your 6 PM and then your 10. And I said, Oh, I don't even think about it like that, but that is what that operational, um, you know, skill set required, which was just literally daily, you know, daily conviction that you had a product that people were going to come to. Um, and so that was just very new for me. Mm-hmm. And that right. was drinking from a fire hose. That was for sure drinking from a fire hose. Um, right. Yeah, but awesome. you, didn't have, you didn't have time to transition slowly in this, this one. Right? No. Right. Yeah, no. For sure. For sure. No, there was no transitioning slowly because, yeah, the, the numbers don't wait for you to learn how to do it, you know. Now, look, I had the great fortune of having a brand that had already been established. So I wasn't creating a brand while at the same time as running a P&L. But still, there was so much to learn, um, plus a team of 14,000 to get to know, which was super important. Um, so learn the business, know the people, don't make mistakes. You know, like it was it was a lot. It was a lot. Um, but But an amazing opportunity at the same time. Okay, so let's let's go for it now to the last biggest challenge that you've had. I won't say the last one you'll ever have, but truly the last biggest one, which was, as you said, March of 2020. You shut down 106 businesses. And of course, you don't know how long it's going to last. I mean, as you as we look back now, right, that that has to be one of the most amazing things that how people dealt with it over 12 months, 24 months, long periods of time, never really knowing um, when, when you were going to go back, back to the, I won't say back to work, right? Back to the office. Yeah. You know, it's funny. I look back and I think our first re underwriting of the business, I think maybe we forecasted like a closure of four weeks, six weeks. We were closed up to 18 months in some jurisdictions. I mean, we really, Talk about not knowing what you don't know. We really had no idea. And these were smart, you know, uh, excluding myself, there were a lot of smart people around this table, right? None of us really knew. We hired the best and brightest in the sciences, you know, doctors to help us think like, how long does a pandemic, you know, no one had any clue. So we were really shooting in the dark um, with, you know, and most importantly, we had employees who were really depending on us to reopen our doors. And I would say that was when you sort of think about transitioning from professional services, whether it's you know, a lawyer or private equity to a consumer business, I would say that's a big difference, right? Your constituency, in that case, my constituency was my 14,000 employees who every day needed a place to go to work so that they could pay their bills and have health insurance. And so the, the fact that we didn't know, the fact that the media made it appear that the gyms were far less safe to go to than the grocery stores, of course, it turned out not to be the case. But um, there were a lot of factors working against us. And so what it teaches you to do is immediately pivot, which we did. We started building some outdoor facilities so that people could work up, up with us outside. You have to move quickly. You don't have the luxury of thinking and overthinking and running them. You just like you have to move quickly to try and save a business. Um, And so I think it's that thinking that I look back on and I sort of say, like, nothing could have prepared. Like, I don't I don't know that what I could have known to have prepared myself more than I did. Um, But I think Lehman helped in a lot of ways because I had been through a crisis and 
had seen what that was like. And so there was a little bit of um, using Lehman as a, as a way to perhaps prepare myself. I don't know to the extent anyone could be prepared. Did you have, I mean, for the law firms, the, one of the, I would say, most important parts of the pivots to continue to be able to do business, which everybody had to do, were the very good technology platforms that the big firms have for sure. And without that, yeah. it would have been impossible to keep going um, without many hiccups, which I think we generally succeeded to in the industry. Did you, and you, as you said, you pivoted to outdoor stuff, I'm sure to virtual, um, you know, classes and, and training and all that. Did you have in place a good technology platform to help you do that? Or were you really building from scratch? Yeah. So if you remember a brand that I know you love had already gotten there, um, Peloton was already in market, right? They were, you know, better lucky than good. I don't know, but maybe they're both, but they had been in market with their bike. And so theirs was literally like just a, a turn of the, of the engine. We were not, I mean, part of, and I, to this day, I, maybe I'll be proven right. Like part of the beauty of what we did was the in-person component, which now of course, following COVID, we realized that like the human connection, there's no substitute for it. So we did have some, you know, media presence, but not in any way, shape or form of the size and scale that others did. And so we pivoted quickly and, and stood that up and stood up a media business. And we met the consumer where they were, which was working out in their basement. And we figured out a way to come to them. But it was, you know, it was always the belief that we would come back to being together, right? We knew this had to, at some point, hopefully, you know, vaccines or whatever come to a close. But yes, you've got to pivot. You've got to meet your consumer, your client, whatever it is where they are. But I think you also need to stay clear in sort of what is the fundamental pillar of your business, right? Even law firms, right? We are an entrepreneurial, like, you know, we, we're, we teach by virtue of being together. We exercise because we're together. Like, I think if you know that to be sort of the fundamental precept of how your business succeeds, you need to stay constant in that while also ideating along the way. Yeah. Well, look, I, I, we could talk for hours about just that chapter of your life. I want to at least give you a chance before we close to also say, okay, I know, I know that you've, you're, you've combined a lot of the um, pieces of the puzzle for your career in, in the health and wellness space, but what's, what's next for Judy Tertian? What, what are you doing now? So I stepped down from Equinox, set up my own advisory business. And so I sit at the intersection of, I would say, real estate, consumer wellness. Real estate, I think I've come to learn is, again, sort of the, the basic premise of like almost every business that I've been involved with. And so I now have the good fortune to sit on a few private equity sponsored boards including Suntex, which is a marina business that I sit on for Centerbridge, a medical aesthetics build business for, um, for a company called Of Me. We've got 27 doors, we're expanding. And so you see, one is medical, one is marinas, but again, the underlying thesis is real estate. Um, I just joined the board of a hotel company, hospitality. So for me, it's trying to figure out how do you weave real estate, wellness, and the consumer together. Because I think one of the things coming out of COVID is that those three things are more closely associated than I think we ever thought would be the case. 
And so helping private equity, helping companies have the cons- deliver to the consumer those three components in a really cohesive manner is maybe where my expertise lies. Okay. Well, I'm quite sure that you'll continue to have great success in the next professional chapter. And as I say, we could talk for a lot longer, but I've taken a lot of your time. So let me just close with a couple of questions for you. So what would you say is the best business advice that you've ever received? Great question. Best business advice I've ever received. I would say, (laughs) I would say there's maybe, I'm going to answer with two. One is a good deal with a bad partner is a bad deal. And two is you can work harder or you can work smarter, but you should probably work both. Um, and so I would say that's some of some of the, I've gotten a lot of good advice, but I'll just throw those two out there. Those are great. So here's another one. Um, I've asked people, if you were to post um, on one of our um, boards at the next meeting of the American College of Real Estate Lawyers, your advice now um, that you would give to that crowd of 300 highly skilled professional real estate lawyers, what would that be on one PowerPoint slide? I think I'd have like a few key words and they would be humble, hungry, hustle, right? I mean, I think there's just like, and maybe uh, those are three H's. I think people like H's. So humble, humble, hungry, hustle, and then maybe grit. And it probably all goes in, but like, there is no substitute. Like you have to want it more than other people. You have to work harder than other. There is no shortcut. Like I, I tell this to people all the time. Everyone's like, "Wow, you've had such a great career." I said, "I've worked my ass off." Like I, I don't know if I can say that anymore. But like I've worked hard. Like it's not. It didn't come to me, right? So people think there are shortcuts. There are no shortcuts. Be really humble. Be willing to learn. Ask people for advice, and then work harder than anyone else in the room. Okay, that's great advice and I'm sure it'll be greatly appreciated by everybody who listens to this um, interview. So Judy, I wanna thank you for taking the time um, because I know you're busy and you know a lot going on. I've really enjoyed having the opportunity to explore lots of things that we've talked about when we're together and to share your great insights with the college and with everybody who gets a chance to listen to this um, podcast. So thank you. Well, Jay, it was an honor. Thank you. Thank you for being a great friend, advisor, um, all those years and, and continuing to be so for me. So of my mentors, you are certainly one of them. And so I know I didn't mention that in the beginning, but really thank you for all of your guidance, friendship and mentorship. Thank you.